you've got to get up every day and, and, and get out there. There's going to be good days and bad days, days you won't sleep at night because you're worrying about things that are out of your control. But you've got to be out there speaking with people constantly and be a, a relentless cheerleader for your business to get to get the brand going, to get people knowing about it. And it should be the topic of every conversation you have. You've got to eat, drink and breathe what you're doing. As more people started doing their shopping online during the COVID pandemic, Adam Haber saw how that was hurting sales for small businesses in his neighborhood on Long Island. That's why he started Trellis, a same-day local delivery marketplace that helps small retailers compete with e-commerce giants like Amazon. I'm Alex Freeman, and on today's episode of the Upflip Podcast, I'll find out how Adam launched his startup business. As the former owner of three restaurants, he's no stranger to opening and running a business. Today, he's going to talk us through every step of opening Trellis, from finding funding to building his team and systems, and what's next for this innovative, community-focused company. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Alex, it's a pleasure to be here. So let's go. Let's go right to the the guts of it here. When did you start Trellis, and what motivated you to to launch the business? The idea for the business started in 2020 uh, with my partners, and the programming took about a year. We launched in January, February 2021, and the idea for the business came when I had small kids, and I worked downtown in Manhattan, commute an hour and a half each way, and my wife would say, "Hey, go to the mall and get Stephanie, my daughter." a birthday gift for her party. And I'd rather shoot myself and fight traffic after a long day. And I was like, why, why can't I just place an order and have something here in a couple of hours that, you know, from a local store? Why, why can't that happen? And that idea came from an experience I had when I was uh, much younger. And, and then along the way, I, I tried to start it when I was involved in government. I was head of economic development for the town of Hempstead and they didn't care. And I found a couple of partners along the way who uh, complimented what I do. I'm more front of the house sales, community relations. I found a guy who's marketing, a programmer, and the three of us are partners. And that's how the business was launched. Incredible, incredible. And can you talk us through what kind of makes Trellis different from, from other delivery businesses like Postmates, Uber Eats, et cetera? And how does that help you better serve your customers? There's a very large blind spot in the delivery business. We don't do hot food. We do a lot of food, like candies, chocolates, uh, baked goods, but we don't do hot food because it's very competitive and we don't do people. And our drivers find that they love working with us because of those two reasons. But nobody was serving that sweet spot of your local businesses within a five or 10 mile radius of where you live that can't afford their own driver because it's 15 bucks an hour plus car plus insurance is about 60 grand a year. And they can't compete with Amazon or, or some of these big box stores that have those resources. So we decided to, after some research, go after that very large but underserved community. And and how many businesses are there listed in the in the marketplace today? And what what kinds of businesses are you are you working with? Right now we have about three hundred. It's growing every day. We do everything from baked goods, candies, chocolates, toys, pharmacies, hardware, printers, clothing, anything that you will find online. That's not hot food is Oracle Books. Uh, we just signed up a, a, a small local bookstore, which is a dying breed. We, we, we try and service anything you'd find online on Amazon or any other e-commerce site we want to have on our network. And it's about 60 plus categories and growing. And you, uh, you mentioned that from, from sort of initial idea to, to launch was, was a, about a year. Um, can you, can you talk us through what those first steps were from going from idea to reality? Sure, sure. I'm an old commodity derivatives trader. I used to work on Wall Street in the trading pits, and I liked instant gratification. So the process of starting something up that 
you know, takes more than 30 seconds, gets me antsy. So I pushed my partners mercilessly and we did this a lot quicker than most companies would. But from concept to programming to launch, and that included me going door to door for three to four months to speak to vendors if there was a business there, took about a year. Wow. Wow. And what was the biggest challenge of of getting started? Well, think about being the first customer of an unknown uh, business that uh, nobody ever heard of that wants to, you know, use a service that nobody, you know, has ever used and trust them. Thankfully, um, I've been very engaged in my community from school board and little league coach and being very engaged with the local park system and everything. So people knew who I was. So there's a level of trust there, but still small business owners are small a lot of times for a reason. They're afraid to take chances and grow. So getting those initial customers took no joke between 10 and 12 visits and handholding. And now they like, apologize because they wish they had done it sooner. <laughs> and and can you talk us through some of the the startup costs and and maybe what if someone if someone is looking at this and says, oh, this might be the kind of industry I want to get into, what some of those big expenses might be that they should be planning for? So to get this off the ground, there was a couple hundred thousand dollars spent in programming. Uh, um, we, we don't have a physical product. We're, we're a virtual on-demand delivery service and marketplace. So, so building out the network, uh, uh, writing the code, uh, which is not my specialty, and, and uh, getting the team together takes money. People have to be paid. You know, as, as an entrepreneur, you usually don't pay yourself in the beginning, but you have to pay people to work for you. So getting everything designed and having a basic minimum product that people could use as an interface took a good $200,000. I want to ask you about raising those funds in just one second. But before I do, just a, a quick reminder to our listeners that if you're looking for more insights on, on getting started with a business, you can head over to our YouTube channel to see more interviews and advice from successful entrepreneurs. Now, Adam, I'm curious, um, how, how did you raise that $200,000 that you needed to, to get Trellis started? And what advice do you have for finding and securing financing for someone looking to start a company? Well, it was a lot easier in the beginning than it is now, as the world's changed dramatically in the last six months with the implosion of the venture market. But uh, I'm an avid venture investor. I've probably, in, in not a, restaurants were something I actively engaged in and invested in, but I also do a lot of startup angel series A, series B rounds, probably 40 or 50 over my lifetime. I've served in some boards and, and I created a network and you should always constantly network and meet people and, and share ideas uh, where I went back to people that I who have known and trust me and raised basically a seed round of $2 million. And it didn't take long. I went to a couple family offices I knew and I went to several high net worth people I've worked with over the years. And I was oversubscribed in about a week. We raised $2 million bucks in December of 21. And until then, we bootstrapped it, my partners and I. We put in a couple hundred thousand dollars and then another 50 or so to get to the point where we needed to raise more money to make it a reality. What do you think are the the biggest keys to the success that you've had so far at Trellis? Like what traits or skills do you think are must-haves for startups? You know, it's funny. It's a silly analogy, but the Terminator, the original one, is one of my favorite movies and nothing could stop that guy. You've got to just walk through walls, be everywhere. You know, people are trying to shoot you down literally and physically. You've got to get up every day and, and, and get out there. There's going to be good days and bad days, days you won't sleep at night because you're worrying about things that are out of your control. But you've got to be out there speaking with people constantly and be a, a relentless cheerleader for your business to get to get the brand going, to get people knowing about it. And it should be the topic of every conversation you have. You've got to eat, drink, and breathe what you're doing. 
Now, you also have experience as a restaurant owner. So I'm curious how the experience of getting a restaurant open and off the ground differed from getting trellis open and off the ground. I'm a, I'm a cereal uh, restaurant owner. Um, and uh, I like to joke, I made a small fortune in the restaurant business. I just started with a large fortune. Um, <laughs> it's a fascinating business because there's so many moving parts, there's so many expenses, the margins are razor thin. The best, best high-end restaurants probably drop between 12 to 15% of the bottom line. And that's a few and far between. What I found from the restaurant business that, that basically transferred over, no, over to what I'm doing now is you can't raise prices, but you can cut expenses or you can find efficiencies. So I'm relentlessly f- trying to find ways to do things that don't waste money, that are efficient. My son joked with me once, it's easy to spend money. You get really good at spending money, but making money can be hard. And that's it. You've got to watch every penny and you've got to be mindful that the bottom line is if you're the CEO like I am, you have to make the final decisions on cost. So it's easy to want to do everything because you get solicited from every possible angle. But the goal is to keep things as simple and streamlined as possible until the revenue starts coming in. Now, when you first got started, you talked about uh, having to go to small business owners, you know, 10, 12 times to kind of get them onto the platform. How has that shifted since you've gotten up and running? How are you working to attract businesses to the marketplace? We tried everything. At first, you thought if you advertise, we did TV commercials, we did uh, social media advertising, and the return on investment was just wasn't there. I thought people would be the path to our door, but the best way to get new customers, and we found the most efficient way, is good old-fashioned face-to-face communication. These small business owners, this is their livelihood, and they've been doing the same thing the same way since the 80s. If they're older, they have an AOL email. They don't have a website. They're afraid to try new things. They want customers coming in their store. Meanwhile, everybody's going to Amazon and, and uh, e-commerce and they, they're reluctant to try things new until it's too late. And that's part of my pitch. I go, let's come in this, you know, we'll let people come in. Let's ask them if they shop on Amazon. And that actually shows people who don't want to open their eyes. It's adapt or die. And uh, we have so we had this one florist in Great Neck, which is basically one of the first villages outside of uh, New York City. And she was going to go out of business. Uh, she ha- didn't have a real good website. She had an AOL email account. And I'm sorry if I offend anybody on this uh, web- webcast here that uh, has an AOL because I used to have one a long time ago. But she didn't couldn't find delivery drivers. She didn't want to adapt. And then after relentless pursuit of, of showing her how easy our system was to use and teaching her how to use, uh, uh, to, to create a ticket, which takes 15 seconds, she's like, oh my God, this changed my life. And it actually expanded her business. So that was a rewarding and great example I like to use when I speak to new, new customers that there's very little risk other than going into business if you don't try something new. Now, the other side of the equation to a successful marketplace is those actual customers for the businesses. What is the strategy to attract people to the platform to to buy things from these businesses? So at first, we were trying to do what DoorDash and Uber Eats and a lot of the billion dollar funded uh, startups did. We're trying to do both B2B and B2C. But the reality is it takes a lot of money to get new customers, a lot. And we, we created a, an interface where customers can basically click through and purchase on any one of our merchants. But the real model we have right now, until we get to our, 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 our Series A round, is we're a B2B business. We sign up businesses and the businesses handle the transactions. Uh, all they buy from us is a delivery ticket. This way, it's a lot easier to grow as opposed to going after customers who we have to then teach how to use our system and build out an app, which costs another $250,000. So the rapid growth model for us 
is not to try and get new shopping customers for now. We could definitely morph into that. But for now, we are going after just businesses and replacing the way they handle logistics and service their customers. And that was a great pivot for us. And how is your how is your geography defined in there? I know that at least in the beginning, you're very focused on the your your kind of local community businesses. Have you expanded out from there or why is that tight focus so important to the business? So we started around my house. Those are the easiest while still difficult customers to sign up. And I like to joke that I can get anything delivered to my house. Uh, today, I got uh, protein balls from my favorite uh, food manufacturer, and I'm getting my dog food delivered tomorrow. It's a great, great service for me, but it's not a business for everybody else. So we started from, from basically the northeastern part of Nassau County, which has about a million four in population, expanded out all over Nassau, and then all the way east to Montauk. And then we're starting, just starting to scratch the surface into Queens. We service on demand now from the Van Wick to Montauk. It's about 120 miles all in, I've had a guess, maybe 110 miles. And it services about three and a half million people. We're strongly considering going just into the suburbs, into Westchester and up to the southern part of Connecticut and just servicing the suburbs because it's so hard to get around New York City with traffic and it's ultra competitive. Although just today I met with, I'm very engaged in in networking and I met with the Queens Chamber of Commerce and there was a woman who represents all the business improvement districts throughout New York City. There's 76 of them. She says, I want you to come in and speak to our bids. And I'm like, okay, to be easier to sign up 400 new customers in a week in New York City, then I guess we're going to New York City. So we go where the ease of entry is. Uh, but right now our model is suburbia and our service area is all of Long Island, which is a long island and parts of Queens. What are those kind of barriers that you might run into that that would make someplace not easy to, to enter into? And so what are you looking for as you expand out for the, the ease of entry? So think about the programming we have to do for a delivery. Right now, our deliveries are between 7 and $10 a piece, whether they're one ounce or 35 pounds. 35 pounds happens to be a case of wine. It's all the same uh, pricing. We have a state liquor authority license to do uh, alcohol also. But it takes a driver, you know, maybe 10 minutes to go five miles. Uh, and we have technology that helps them do multiple deliveries in a short time. But if we go into New York City, we have to do a whole bunch of new programming. Uh, how, how far can a driver or a guy on a bike or uh, a messenger go at the height of rush hour traffic in midtown Manhattan? I mean, it could take an hour to get across town. So we'd have to change the model. It might be a half a mile uh, for the base fee. And then after that, it's a buck fifty a mile. But it's easier and quicker for us to, st- to just stay in the suburbs because there's an incredible, incredible amount of business out there. Even home-based businesses need logistics. So we have many, many, many years ahead of us of growth before we start worrying about changing the way we do it now. But the hurdles are are time. And we want to make sure our drivers get paid and get paid well. We want them to be best in class. They get 80% of the delivery fee. So these are the things we consider as we try to expand. And that's one of the reasons why I was trying to avoid going into the very crowded Manhattan. But a little fun fact, there's 2.4 million packages delivered a day in the five boroughs. And a 1%, 1% of that is a $20 million a year logistics business, which is 24,000 packages a day. So you can only imagine how much business there is, you know, everywhere. You don't need to be where everybody else is. Yeah. I want to, I want to ask you about the the drivers. Um, what is the process for someone to become a driver for Trellis and, and why that system over a different option to, to hire drivers in? So we want to have best in class drivers. We want people who take pride in what they do, who have, they have to have a certain model car. 
They can't be older than 10 years. It has to be well-maintained. They have to have a minimum amount of insurance. They have to go through DMV checks, through extensive background checks. So when somebody comes to your door, they're clean-shaven or, or dressed neatly, and you don't feel threatened, and you feel like you're getting somebody from a representative of a good company who's dropping off your goods and services. And it's important because the drivers are the interface that most of our customers see, not uh, the people in the office or out in the field who are selling. They, they, they're, they're seeing basically your gig drivers. So it's extremely important that they're, they like us. And what we found and what we're excited about is they like us better than anybody else because of how we treat them. Uh, we make sure to pay them every day in full. They keep 100% of their tips and we're very transparent in what they do. So we have really little turnover in drivers, which has so far been great. Are there any disadvantages or risks of, of utilizing kind of a, a gig worker system? And how do you offset those risks at Trellis? That's a question that it's almost like a learn as you go as we see the model grow. I mean, it's less expensive to not have to pay the overhead of a full-time employee. And gig drivers, they don't have to work for us. They could work for five services at once and whatever message they get to do the next delivery they can go to. And 100% of our drivers do that. They just don't work for Trellis. They work for other services, but they prefer us as the ease of integration and, and pick up and drop off is better than the others, in our mind, but services. But if, if the local governments or the federal government decides that we have to make every driver a full-time worker, we will. But that's what the industry standard is right now, and that's what we're going with. We don't want to be at a competitive disadvantage. We just want to be a competitive in the marketplace about how we treat our workers. And that's extremely important to us. I mean, the number one thing we express in the office and on the field is kindness. Don't let anybody treat you any differently than you expect to be treated anywhere. And if we, we fired customers, we've had merchants who were belligerent and we said, I'm so sorry, but we just can't work with you anymore. Uh, you should find somebody else to do work with you. And it's only happened three or four times, but those are the people that could ruin your company. So those are the ways we keep and retain drivers. And the, the gig driver is the, is the model we use now and we'll continue to use until the law tells us otherwise. So this is going to bring us to a section of our show we call our Fan Blitz questions. These questions come from our YouTube community. You can go over to uh, youtube.com slash upflip, join the community and post questions to future podcast guests. Adam, we're going to try and get through about seven questions in 90 seconds. Uh, so let's see how we do. Are you ready? Is this a full out blitz, blitz or a safety blitz? It's a safety blitz. It's a safety blitz. You know, going <laughs> to leave a little room on the back end for us there. Fair enough. Uh, all right, here we go. Uh, first question here. If you could go back in time and tell your younger self, don't do this thing, what would it be? The thing that I would do is tell people if you're going to invest in anything, invest in people, not products. I've lost more money in crazy people and great products than I have in crazy products and great people. So invest in the person first and foremost. What do you do with the, the profits from the company? Plow them right back in. That's how you grow. If something were to happen to you, what would happen to the business? I've got two very capable partners, Brian Berkery, who's head of marketing, and Jared Jensen, who's our tech guru. So we have uh, an agreement in place. If one of us goes down, the other two could easily take over and fill in the shoes of the person who's left. So we have it all taken care of. If you could change one thing about your business, what would it be? The holy grail that we're working on is we have the technology to do multiple deliveries up to 49. And the interface we're working on, we want to make it as seamless and easy as possible because nobody's doing what we're doing. And we're, we're toying with ways to make that quicker and faster. That's the one thing that I wish we could work out sooner. What's the biggest misconception that people have about your position? It's easy. Uh, <laughs> it's not. I, I, I've uh, had many sleepless nights. I worry about jobs that I provided for people. I worry about servicing my customers. It's, it ain't easy. If it was, everybody would do it. 
If aliens took over tomorrow, how would you convince them to let you keep running the business? Assuming they're friendly aliens and won't eat my face off, uh, I would tell them that you need small businesses to keep the economy going if you want to dominate a healthy society. Last blitz question here. If you could have anyone in the world endorse your business, who would it be and why? In this crazy world we live in, it's social media, it's popularity. Uh, it's incredible how much people have followed celebrities. And I would say the best celebrity on Long Island right now is probably Billy Joel. He's local royalty. So if Billy Joel says shop trellis, then everybody would. That would be my number one person. I love it. And that is going to do it for our fan blitz questions. Again, those come from our YouTube community. Go over to youtube.com slash upflip, join the community and post questions to future podcast guests. Adam, I'm curious about what the process is for, for a company to be listed in the marketplace. Is there is there a screening process before you list the business? What does that look like? They can't be a corporate giant. They can't be publicly traded. They, ha- they can't, like we'll never work with Whole Foods, Target, Walmart. They have to be a local vendor. The whole purpose is a small business marketplace. And, it, you know, we won't do uh, Best Buy, but we'll do your local your local electronics store. That's And we've turned down some some pretty big clients because we were trying to create a small business community that people support. I mean, that's the whole goal of this. And then what is the what's the revenue structure at Trellis? Can you talk about the kind of fee structure? Who's paying what fees and, and how you settled on, on those decisions? We have a, a SaaS model for vendors between $20 and $100 a month, depending on what you want to pay for deliveries. And the more you pay monthly, the lower your deliveries are. And then the delivery costs are between seven and $10, depending on what program you have. The tickets are purchased by the vendor. The vendor can either upcharge it. Like every, we have 40 florists on our platform and every single florist makes money using Trellis because they get 12 to $15 for delivery, even if it's across the street. They could pass the cost on or they could eat the cost. So uh, free delivery if you buy over $100 of our product. Um, that's up to the vendor. We also integrate with several platforms at checkout, Shopify, WooCommerce, Wix, where the customer decides and certain businesses pass the cost on. So you might want to do UPS, curbside, which is free. If you want to deliver to your home in a couple hours, definitely same day, then it's 7 or $10 or whatever you want to charge for Trellis. When somebody is getting a delivery business started, what are some of the must-have systems that they should have in place before they, they open their doors? You have to have a great interface that's easy to use for people who aren't technologically savvy so they don't get intimidated. It's got to be as simple as possible and not break down, which is two easy things to say, but difficult to do. What kind of uh, software or tools are you utilizing to manage workflow and, and why might you recommend those to a startup? Well, we have a lot of proprietary uh, stuff that we've done, but we, we have several different vendors in our stack. On the front end, we use React, the back end Node, Stripe is our processing company, OnFleet is our dispatcher. They're a pretty popular logistics partner for a lot of businesses. We use Salesforce for our CRM, for our CRM, excuse me. And then we have a pretty cool uh, help center that's based on Zendesk, but we've done a lot of our own proprietary ads to it. And we have great contact with our customers right on the screen. If, you know, I got a pet peeve of people calling and being on hold. Uh, we try and get answers within 30 to 60 seconds to everybody. Now, I, I do want to ask you about the pr- proprietary software that you have developed. You don't obviously have to reveal the proprietary nature of the software, but I'm curious about the decision-making process saying, okay, this is going to be better for us if we develop something custom versus using using an out-of-the-box option. And then can you also talk us through the process of actually developing that software? Well, I'll take your last question first. I'm not a developer. 
I'm more of the uh, idea community liaison, um, CEO face of the company. So the process of developing uh, the software, you might as well ask me to do brain surgery. You don't want me doing it. But that being said, there's, there's feedback you get from the people who use it and interfaces they ask for. And, and we've gotten feedback from our customers and made, and we're constantly doing it, edits or changes or new features that they've asked for. So they want to keep using it. And that's, you know, behind the scenes and in front of the scenes, we have a whole team of developers who work on on making this thing easy to use. And then I get feedback with my sales team on the wish list of, oh, I wish we could integrate our API with our own server and and, and make this seamless. And and uh, we do. We, we, we have open, an open API. It's If you have the ability to do it, we can integrate right into your website. We try and make this as easy and user-friendly as possible. Can you talk to us about your, your leadership and management style and why it is effective for a startup? I mean, and I beat people if they don't do what I ask. That's what, that's what we do. <laughs> the, actually, the opposite. We, we, um, we hot, I, I hated working for people who use their power position to abuse you. And I used to work on Wall Street, and, and I, I don't like that mentality. I wanted to be the best company to work for on the planet. Uh, and we actually won very early on, best place to work on Long Island from a, a local organization who, who had a pretty extensive outreach and, and we were psyched about that. But the number one thing I tell everybody who comes on board is that this is a, a business based on kindness, not only with our customers, but with each other. And anything less than being kind and supportive is not to be tolerated. Everybody's ideas are open. Uh, um, we At every meeting we have on a Monday morning, I expect just not the department heads, but the individuals who work on those departments, hey, we want to hear what you think. This is a place where your input is valued. And we just want you to be happy when you come to work as we help small businesses compete in a very competitive world. So it's just that we want to make this a, a happy place to work that people enjoy being part of and so far so good. And how many people are working there? What's the what's the size of the, the employee base at Trellis? Uh, we have 18 full-time in-house marketers and programmers and uh, sales team and customer success folks. And we have over 70 drivers in our network with more in the queue who want to work for us. We just don't want people to sit around all day twiddling their thumbs. So as we grow and during Christmas week, I'm sure we'll add some more. That's the depth and breadth of our, of our business. So what was your strategy when you when you built that team and how did you find great employees? You know, it's funny. We got we had a budget and the budget happened before covid and then COVID happened, and sales personnel salaries went through the went through the roof. Through the roof, programmers went through the roof, and instead of a sales team of eight, we did six. Instead of you know five programmers, we did four because the pricing just got so bananas. And then what happened was one of our developers was going to be poached by Facebook about three months ago, and he didn't want to take the job, but it, you know he has to do what's best for his family, so he asked for a raise. Not as much as Facebook was going to offer them. Then we, we gave him the raise because he's a valuable team member, and then Facebook fired everybody and stopped hiring. So that world's changed dramatically, but we got caught in a bit of a squeeze. We pay very competitive salaries for all our positions, and people appreciate that, and it's a great place to work. I want to ask a bit about your kind of online presence, which obviously, you know, an, an app service-based company, uh, online is important. What information does someone who maybe is starting an app or service-based business need to make sure they have online? And, and why is that important for customers? You know, when you search for Trellis, you know, it's funny, I wanted to call it Long Island Delivers, which, and I have two partners who outvoted me, I believe in democracy, usually only when I'm the person who's in the right, but I guess I had a take my partner's advice in this one because we can't be a national company uh, with Long Island Delivers. So we ended up calling it Trellis, T-R-E-L-L-U-S. And we figured we'd come up 
it first in the search when people typed it in. Little do we know there was a national uh, healthcare company named Trellis. But what's important for your business is when people type your name in that you come up very early on in the search. When they is, is we we spend a fair amount of money on search terms. We want to make sure that we're easily discovered. And then once people have access to the website, it's a positive experience. They understand what we're doing very, very quickly, and they don't get frustrated by not knowing uh, how to how and when to use our service. So those are the things that we thought about, but it's an interesting process that, that uh, we're always fine-tuning. When you were building out that website, did you do that in-house or hire an agency? In-house, in-house. We have uh, uh, my partner, J.R. Jensen, is a talented website designer and programmer, and uh, that saves us a lot of money. Now, also, uh, 90% of Trellis deliveries made in less than two hours. How do you ensure speedy service? So we're, our model is a bit different than, than the Uber Eats and DoorDashes and uh, Amazons of the world and UPS. So there's a lot of packages that don't get delivered and, and they get frust- people get frustrated. Uh, you, know, you, know, you can imagine sometimes you just don't get stuff. For example, if you type in 100 Main Street and you live at 1000 Main Street, that package is never getting to you. There's no way to call those companies and find out where your package is. It's lost and it's frustrating, especially when you have a problem. We have a dispatcher who follows every car with an online dashboard on a big uh, TV screen and sees where everybody is. Everybody takes a picture of the delivery so we know exactly what house it went to. The customer and the business that makes the delivery, including us, can watch where the driver is. We can get a signature at the door or scan a license if it's liquor, if you need it. So we, we, we're a white glove uh, customer service company that does logistics. And the small business owner, uh, if you're a flower shop and you miss a flower delivery, it's the end of the world for you. If you're 100 flowers, you miss a delivery, no one cares because, you know, it's just somebody else will use your system. But, but we cater to uh, a very finicky crowd and they really appreciate what we're doing because once we find a new vendor uses us, he starts doing more deliveries and it helps enhance their business. So that's the service that we're going to continue to expand where we know that we deliver 99.9% of all packages. And if we make a mistake, we fix it. If the customer makes a mistake, then they pay for it. But we make sure that that package is delivered. Now, everything you just described is is definitely, you know, A plus customer service. So I'm curious how you train that into your team members and I guess into your various partners that you're working with, especially with, with gig-based drivers. How do you make sure that everybody is kind of meeting that standard? We have our driver and HR network person, who's my other partner, Brian Berkery, has tr- driver training sessions, how to use the tech that we have, the proper way to, to make a delivery, how to approach a home. You know, you remember those old Samsung commercials where the grill would jump in the, up and down on the luggage or, or they just chuck packages across the floor. No, the, the package this person is getting is, is near and dear to the consumer and to the uh, vendor. And we try and make sure that every package is delivered with courtesy and kindness. And uh, it's a satisfaction guaranteed for both the consumer and for the business. And that's why they keep coming back. What's the next step for Growing Trellis? And, and what are you doing now to prepare yourself for that step? Well, the next step is growth, rapid growth. We want to be best in class for this niche that nobody else in the country is doing what we're doing. We couldn't believe that. And we want to make sure that small businesses know that we're a trusted brand. So it's expanding. It's expanding outside of the Long Island, Queens area, going into Westchester, going into North Jersey. There's probably 40 to 50 million people in the country, in and around major cities in our target markets, which is, it could be a huge, huge company. But beyond that, we also want to be best in class as far as offering services to our vendors. We have a partnership with ADP. 
So if you want to get severely discounted payroll services, that's that, that we signed an agreement with them that they would give our clients lowest prices possible. We want to offer gift cards and we want to you know, do advertising basically by zip code. So if you want to be the first business to come up in our search, there's all these ways we can monetize and grow. But at heart, we're an on-demand delivery service and marketplace. And the 800-pound gorilla that we're trying to figure out and get to by the end of the summer this coming year is we want to be completely sold through on Long Island and have over a 1,000 vendors. And we want you to type in whatever you want into the toolbar, and then all the inventory will be pulled from every one of those vendors or merchants' websites. So we don't need a warehouse all over Long Island with 100,000 square feet. Each of these small businesses are our warehouses. So if your experience is in one part of where, where our service area is, have a certain amount of vendors, you'll have a different experience out in, in the Hamptons or on the South Shore. And we want to be able to service all of these customers uh, who use our system and become a B2C business fulfillment company where you'll type in what you want and get something within a couple hours guaranteed same day in every category. And that's the goal. All we need to do is sign up every possible vendor in every possible category, and we can offer a better experience quicker than you can get online or through Amazon. Is uh, long range, is the eye on, on taking the company public? You know, it's funny that you say that because there's a lot of downsides to taking a pu- company public. You've got to deal with shareholders who want quarterly results instead of growth. There's a lot of, it's about a million bucks a year, depending on what exchange you go on to just stay public. There's no reason why we can't grow and become a huge, Cargill is the largest uh, uh, private company in the world. I, mean, I think they're a 50, $60 billion company. Public sounds exciting, but there's many ways for investors to monetize what they have with us. It could be through cash distributions. It could be through strategic purchases from another competitor. It could be just from growth and eventually being sold to uh, or go public. Uh, but we're way, way early to decide that. The capital markets are a great way to access money for growth, but buyer beware on that one. Now, uh, you also mentioned um, earlier in our conversation that you are a big believer in networking. Obviously, there's there's a lot of business reasons uh, for you to be out networking, but but what what other benefits exist in building a network of other business leaders? I, I like to joke that every entrepreneur should try and be a D minus celebrity. That everywhere you go, people know who you are or think they know who you are. It makes the ease of of uh, entry or or networking that much easier. I mean, right after this call, um, this this podcast, I'm going to a uh, in Huntington. There's a, a networking meeting. I was at one in this morning in Queens. I try to go to at least five to seven a week, which is, if you think about it, about three hundred a year, and you get to see the same person and people over and over again. And with that repetition comes a sense of comfort that people are more comfortable doing business with you. And it also helps you learn and, and see what else is out there. So sitting home in your underwear thinking you could start a business online, it ain't happening. You got to get out there and meet people. You've got to get out there and tell your story. And you got to be relentless about it. If someone came to you for advice looking to to get started uh, in, a, in a similar kind of, kind of company, what advice would you give them? I would tell them that they should spend six months trying to have breakfast, lunch, or dinner with 10 different people who were either tangential or directly related to their industry, getting feedback and creating relationships. So they know everything they need to know about what they're doing before they spend a dollar because the money will go quickly and capital is precious. And those relationships will help you find better vendors, better services, better business partners, whether it's through whoever you use to help build out your website or marketing or PR. It's, it's, like going to college and getting your your master's and doctorate in a, in a particular topic. You want to be an expert before you launch in your field. 
If you could pick the one thing that people take from this interview, what would it be? And it ain't easy that you, if you want to do something that's meaningful, you've got to put your heart and soul in it. You know, I heard a joke once, I don't know where I heard it, but you know, if you want to start a business, just work half days, seven days a week, you pick whatever 12 hours you want to work every day and you know, then you'll be accomplished. But you know, I'm a big believer in working smarter, not harder. It's, it's being organized, uh, having structure, finishing meetings in a timely manner, not letting them run on and moving from task to task. Uh, those are the things that I do pretty well. And that I think are part of my success. What's your favorite business book and why? I'm an avid reader, but the best business book that I've ever read was about a year ago. This is a guy named Adam Grant, who's pretty popular and and well-known. He wrote a book called Give and Take, Why Helping Others Drives Our our Success. And he highlighted three kinds of people. There's givers, people who like to network and, and help people and connect people and don't want anything out of that. There's takers, people who will just take as much as they can and never give anything back. You know, you'll help somebody with with uh, tutoring or mentoring and give them advice, and then you reach out to them and they lose your number. And then there's tit for tat. I mean, basically, you help me, I'll help you. I love this book because it it basically it shares. You know, success is about giving more than receiving. Time, energy, love, and uh, I've always been a net giver in a variety of ways. It makes me happy to help people. I don't expect anything in return. And when I find people like that. I just want to be around them. So surrounding yourself with people who are net givers, who give more than they receive is a great path for happiness and the great theme of this book and why I love it so much. Where can people learn more about you and about uh, Trellis? Well, they can go to bytrellis.com, B-Y, B as in boy, Y as in yes, T-R-E-L-L-U-S.com. They could poke around all they want. They can email me at adam at bytrellis.com. And they can go to my LinkedIn page, which is Adam Haber, which is pretty easy to find because I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. But I'm happy to share feedback or speak with people and have them bounce ideas off me. I'm always learning. I love learning new things, how new businesses work. I love connecting people. So please uh, reach out. I enjoy hearing from people and I'd love their feedback. That is going to do it for this episode of the Upflip Podcast. A reminder to our to our listeners that you can find more tips on starting and growing a business on the Upflip blog, upflip.com slash blog, or check out the listings at upflip.com if you're ready to buy a business. Adam Habert of Trellis, thank you so much for, for joining us. It was enjoyable. Uh, I hope it was as good enough for you as it was for me, but I enjoyed it uh, very much and it was, the questions were great and the feedback was great. 